Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. When the angel appeared to the women at the tomb on resurrection morning, according to Luke, the angel had an interesting question for them. He asked them, why do you look for the living among the dead? And then he went on to say, remember when he was with you, he told you that all of this was going to happen, that he would die, and that on the third day he would rise again. But the fact is, none of the women did remember that. Neither did any of the disciples who were there. None of them remembered it either. So the question we're going to ask today in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study is, why did no one remember what Jesus had said? Was it really that difficult to remember? Uh, And we're also going to uh, ask the question of, Uh, what exactly did the disciples think had happened that morning at the tomb? The women came back. They told him the story about the angel, that that Jesus had risen, and yet they refused to believe the women. The disciples refused to believe the women. So if they refused to believe that, then what did they think must have happened at the tomb that morning? Well, that's what this episode is all about. Okay, so we are uh, in Luke now, chapter 24, um, and we are still looking at the resurrection morning, and this time we're looking at Luke's um, gospel and what his story is, what he tells us. And um, it's interesting because as we go through these, We've now finished Matthew and Mark, and now we're into Luke. It's interesting how they each have a a different kind of something they want to tell us. And uh, in Mark, I mean, in uh, Matthew, we learn about the Roman soldiers. And the reason that Matthew is the one who brings this up is because he was, remember, a former tax collector, as a tax collector for the Romans, he would have had interaction with the Roman guards and the Roman soldiers and the Roman <coughs> leaders uh, of that time. And so he had a familiarity with the Roman with Rome, with the Romans, 
that the others may not have had. And so when he writes his account, it's important for him to talk about the Roman soldiers because he is familiar with that, with that element of the culture of that day. And he was comfortable to, to do that. And then we move to Mark, and Mark is the one who says in his passage something that none of, so none of the other of the gospel writers give us the, the Roman soldiers, except Matthew. And Mark is the only one who gives us two words in his gospel, in his account. He says, and Peter. The women go, he has the angel telling the women, go and tell the disciples that Jesus is risen, he's alive, and be sure to tell Peter too. And we talked about the reason that that was important to Mark is because he basically saw Peter as his mentor. And that pretty much the, the, the experts agree, the scholars agree, that most of Mark's account of his whole gospel was just a retelling of the stories that Peter told to Mark. So Mark wasn't there for, he wasn't an apostle, he wasn't a disciple, he wasn't there for most of Jesus' ministry, but he's able to write about it because he's basically telling what Peter told to him. So when it comes to, hey, be sure to tell the disciples that uh, Jesus is risen, Mark wants us to know that Peter is included in that group. Even though he denied Jesus, he's forgiven and he's to be included, to be brought back into the fold, as it were, uh, even though he denied Jesus. And that was important to Mark. And he's the only one that tells us about that. So now we get into Luke, and we're trying to see, you know, what did Luke tell us that is unique to Luke? And uh, we find that at the very end of, of, uh, verse, of the, the, morning, the morning story that Luke gives us, where we have Peter getting up and running to the tomb, and then going home. And Luke is the only one who gives us this, this part of the story. And, uh, you know, why was that important to Luke? Well, Luke was uh, very methodical in his gospel. He was a, a doctor by trade, and so he was very analytical. He was intelligent. He was probably well-educated. And he says out as his purpose to give a very clear and distinct and uh, and a really accurate uh, history of, of Jesus' ministry. And uh, so when it comes to talking about what happened that morning at the tomb, he wants us to know that Peter was the one, now we know John also did it because John gives us the fact that he was there too, but Luke only gives us Peter instead of John. And, and so why was that important to Luke? And I think because... Uh, you know, Luke wanted us to know also that Peter wasn't just sitting on the sideline, and that in in um, in spite of what Peter did, he was active and he was searching and he wanted to know what firsthand what was happening, and uh, and did not just say, hey, I made a mistake, and so um, I'm out of God's will. I'm out of his plan. Um, and uh, even though at this point he hasn't been brought back in through Christ, he at least wants to be involved enough to get up 
and go and see for himself. And I think that was important to Luke because he wants to give a full account of what was happening. And it's important to Luke to let us know that Peter was still involved and still and still participating. And so, and so Luke brings us that. So let's go in and let's look, and we're going to kind of go quickly through the first seven verses because we did that last week. But I'm going to read from um, the, uh, the, the original version, the way it's written. I'm not going to read the Greek, but I'm going to read the way that the Greek is translated. So we're going to start in verse uh, 20, in, in chapter 40, 24, verse 1. And actually, in the original, what, the way it's written, it says that first verse is, the first word of the first verse is, but, on the first day of the week. So when you have the word but, well, you have to say, well, something happened beforehand that we probably need to know about. So let's actually go back to chapter 23, verse 55, to pick up what Luke is referring to when he says, but on the first day of the week. So 23.55 says, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph, that would be Joseph of Arimathea, and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. So here again, Luke is being very specific and very analytical. Not only did they go and uh, follow Jesus and saw the tomb, they actually saw how his body was laid in it. So this is important. We'll talk about that here in a minute. Verse 56, Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So now we pick up in, in chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, those women, came to the tomb, bringing which they had prepared, aromatics, and some others with them. And you probably don't have that last phrase, right? And others with them? Most translations don't include that, but it's here in the original. So what Luke is wanting us to know is that um, the women who came from Galilee, who were with Jesus, who helped Jesus, and who went out and prepared spices, they are the ones who went to the tomb early on Sunday morning with their spices, to anoint Jesus' body, but there were some others with them. So what does it mean by others? Well, these were probably other women who either did not prepare spices to take, or they were other women who did not come from Galilee with him. So I'm not sure which of the, or it could be both. We don't know. But what Luke wants us to know is that, and we'll see this kind of a couple other places here in Luke's passage, is that this whole thing was probably a little bit bigger than we think about it traditionally. And that is that we do have a handful of women, three women, four women, who are named by name, who came with Jesus from Galilee, who took care of him, who prepared spices and who went to the tomb early that morning. But Luke wants us to know there were other women too, who are unnamed, we don't know whether they're other because they didn't prepare spices, they're other because they didn't come from Galilee or what, but there were other women too. I don't, we don't know how many, we don't know anything about them, but what Luke is saying is this is a little bit more involved, a little bit bigger than just the three or four women who prepared spices that, that night. 
So then on verse uh, 2, it says, they, the, the original says, they found and the stone rolled away from the tomb. So you probably have, let me see what mine says here. Um, they found the stone rolled away uh, from the tomb. So they found and the stone, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then in verse 3, and having entered, they found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And I think this is why Matthew gave us what he gave us up in chapter 23. Because it says, the women, they entered the tomb. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So the reason that I think Luke gave us in chapter 23, where he says, they saw, they followed Joseph, and they saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it. And then here in chapter 23, he says, they did not find the body of the Lord. What he wants us to know here is that they didn't make a mistake. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. They saw which tomb he was laid in. And not only that, but they saw where the body was laid. So they knew exactly where to look in the tomb once they went in there. They knew exactly where to look to find Jesus, and he wasn't there. And so this is part of what Luke is giving us through his analytical uh, uh, story, is that they knew exactly what they were looking for. They knew exactly where to go. There's no mistake here. There's no, oh, they went to the wrong tomb, oh, they, they got to the tomb, but they looked in the wrong place. No. He says they went to the tomb, they saw the tomb, and they saw where he was laid, and yet when they went there that morning, they went into the tomb, the right tomb, and they went exactly to where he was, and he wasn't there. So that's a, that's, that's a good thing to know. That, and because what some people later will try to do is say, well, they went to the wrong tomb, or whatever, as an explanation for why this happened. Uh, but Luke wants us to know that's not even a possibility. So... Let's go to chapter or to verse 5 then. It says, that was verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 4. And it came to pass, as were perplexed they, as they were perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in garments shining. That's the way the Greek is, and you probably have it. While they were wondering about this, suddenly, Two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And the idea there of wondering or being perplexed is the, the Greek there means that they were entirely at a loss. They were entirely at a loss to explain what was going on. They go into the, first of all, the stone is rolled away. That was unexpected. Then they go into the tomb to where they know Jesus was laying and he's not there. And so they're at a total loss as to what is going? They're perplexed. They're wondering. They're at a total loss to get their head around what is going on here. This is not at all what we expected when we were on our way. And then it says, then suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning. Uh, we said last week uh, you might have dazzling, uh, shining. Uh, the idea there in the original Greek is yes, it's like lightning. It's dazzling. And so what Luke wants us to know is that. Uh, they looked like men, but they weren't regular men. They were wearing clothes that gleamed, that shined, that sparkled, that was like lightning. 
He's obviously describing angels. So these were two angels that were in the tomb there. Okay, and then uh, verse uh, 5. And filled with fear, and the idea there is that they're, they're, they're being filled with fear. They're, the fear is filling them as they, as they go. And filled with fear, and, become, and becoming filled with fear is the idea. And becoming filled with fear, uh, and bowing to, uh, the face to the earth, they said to them, to the, uh, the angel said to them, to the women, why, or the angel said, why seek ye the living with the dead? Why seek ye the living with the dead? Uh, and that's, of course, every Easter Sunday, uh, sermons are preached on that exact topic. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Uh, you came expecting to find a dead Jesus. Instead, you are going to find the living Christ, the living Messiah, the living Lord. And then he goes on to say, he is not here, uh, he, but, but is risen. That's the good news proclaimed. And then he says, remember how he spoke to you, yet being in Galilee. Remember how he spoke to you while he uh, was with you in Galilee. Uh, the other translation I have here, the NIV says, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? And then he says, uh, what did he tell them? Saying, it behooveth the Son of Man to be delivered up into hands of men sinful and to be crucified and the third day to arise. And the idea there is, and you probably have in your translation, something like, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered. And here in the Greek it's translated, it behooveth the Son of Man. And the idea there is that it was necessary, that this was necessary, that this came to be because it had to be. Stan? Uh, I just had a question. Uh, yeah. In Ezekiel and some other places, uh, God speaks to the prophets and says, Son of Man. Mm -hmm. And here is the Son of Man. And I just wondered if you had anything to say about that distinction or um, why, I mean, I always thought of the Son of Man as being Christ, but um, he does use, he does call other people Son of Man, yeah. which confused me for a while. I always thought Son of Man referred to a prophet. If you, if you look through the Old Testament, usually what they're talking about is a prophet. So, uh, but he, he seems to have, he seems to have that about the same thing. Well, Jesus most often referred to himself as the Son of Man. And here's what, here's what I think uh, that is the case, is because he, he, th in that day, people had no problem seeing Jesus as a man, as a man. Because he was there, he was in the flesh and blood, they saw him, they heard him, they touched him, they saw him eat, drink, so on and so forth. They had no problem seeing him as a son, as a son of, as a son of man, because seeing him as a man. Their problem was seeing him as God, as seeing him as the Lord. Um, Let me just mm -hmm. that has always been my kind of thing. Why in the world would an angel say the son of God? Mm -hmm. I, I've always, always questioned that. Why? Why would he say the son of man at that point? He's not he's beyond being a living man. Yeah. Well, I think, I think today though, it's. The opposite is true. 
And I think we have no problem uh, seeing Jesus as God, as the Lord incarnate, uh, Emmanuel, God with us today, as we read the Bible, seeing the miracles and and hearing the preaching and, and of course, the resurrection from the dead and all that. So we have no problem seeing God, seeing Jesus today as God. Uh, our problem today is seeing Jesus as man, as, as a man who is flesh and blood. And so I think one of the reasons we see him referring to himself so often as son of man is because he wanted us to know through posterity and down through the ages that yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. And he felt the things that we feel. And and, and so often we say, well, of course, he was, he was God. But he himself wants to know, but yes, but he was also man. So was he tempted? He's tempted. At this point, that's my point. After he passed away, he was no longer son of man. He was son of God. But the message is still the same. The message is still the same. That, yes, he rose from the dead, but he was still human in, in his incarnation. So. Even, even after he rose. Yeah. But this says... He must be delivered. So, in other words, before he rose, he was still the Son of Man. So it says the Son of Man must be delivered. They're not saying, they're not talking about for for him for him to be our Savior. He had to be a living, breathing, flesh and blood man. He had to be face the same temptations we faced, overcome those. He had to face the same, you know. Uh, uh, be tired, be hungry, be sad, all of those things, because otherwise, you know, we can't relate to him. He can't relate to us. He was our savior because even though he was fully man, he did not sin. He, 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 he lived a perfect life. And so to be our savior, he has, we have to see him as fully man, blood and flesh and bone and, and all the things that we face, he faced. And, and, and yet he overcame them and he was, he was, he was sinless, and that's why he can be our sacrificial lamb and the lamb of God and to us. And if you read this, they're saying, remember, he was, you know, they're, they're, past yeah, they're saying, remember he told you. Remember how he told you. Yes. The son of man. So he's, he, if he says the son of God at that point. We, we, I used to do a, um, a Good Friday presentation uh, where we walk through the last week of Holy Week uh, as kind of being part of the group. And uh, a friend of mine and I, we did like sound effects. So we actually like when he overturned the money changers tables, you heard coins clattering on the floor and you heard, you know, chickens all. And, and we did this as kind of a, we called it a dramatic reading. And so we went through the entire last week and we, of course, concentrated a lot on what happened on the cross and before the cross and, you know, the crown of thorns and the flogging and the crucifixion and the nails and all of that. And I never will forget one time after we did the presentation, the pastor's wife came up to me and she said, you know, the only thing that really makes me feel a little bit better about all of that, that what happened to Jesus, is that because he was God, he didn't feel it like we would have felt it. Because he was God, he didn't experience the same kind of pain to the level that a normal man would. And I thought, well, you missed the whole point then. 
<laughs> you missed the whole point. The point is, even though he experienced it the same way we would, the same pain we would, he still went through with it. And even though he knew beforehand that was going to happen, he still sacrificed his life for us as our Savior. So if you think that because he was fully God and fully man, that somehow that God part made life easier for him, no, he was fully man. So I think that's another thing that, that's part of the reason why he's referred to so often as son of man, because today we don't, we see him as God, of course, but we need to also remember he was, he was human. That doesn't really answer Stan's question as to why the other Prophets were called son of man. Is that what you're yeah. Yeah. I don't know that any prophets were called son of man. Were, to my, uh, yeah. I don't know. But that wasn't really a title. He was referring to them as they were they were they were men. But son of man here is a title for Jesus. That's a description of saying you're a son of man. But you're not the son of man. So, correct, correct. Correct. But yeah, but. No, that's more of him saying that this is your status in life. You're a prophet, and you're as you know. I'm using you as my spokesperson. You're still a son of man. You're still a man, but I'm giving you this anointing for this moment in this hour. But they weren't the son of man. As that's a title for for Jesus. It was not a title for a prophet. So I wonder. But I'm wondering if maybe he called himself son of man in his lifetime. Jesus did because he didn't think they were ready to be for him to say. No, I don't think so. I think that he wanted them to see him as God. Uh, I just think that, you know, it was uh, it's just what we said about, it was what we talked about here today. So. When he said that I am, uh, yeah. he made a claim that he was God. Well, I mean, he, he, asked the, he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? He wanted them. And when Peter said, you're basically the Messiah, he patted him on the back for that, you know, that, hey, no one gave that to you, but you understood that, and he praised that. So he wasn't hiding the fact that he was Messiah, that he was God. He wanted them to know that, but they were kind of slow on the uptake before and after. So. <laughs> it's because it's a title. It's like King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Son of Man, Son of God. Exactly. Sure. So my brain's going back to something I've been taught and the brain doesn't work like it used to. But that each one of the gospels were written in like to maybe a different group of people. So I went back to the introduction in my Bible for this and it says that it, Luke was principally uh, written for the Greeks. So that has a, a lot to do with, yeah, with emphasis. Um, for the Greeks, its emphasis is upon the perfect humanity of Christ, whom presents as the Son of Man, the human divine person. 
and his genealogy traces back to Acts. So it was written for the Greeks. Well, Luke was a Greek, and so, you know, that might have been his audience. Now you bring that up, and now there's contention there. I go with that contention. I believe he was not a Greek because the scriptures clearly say that the scriptures were brought to the world by Jews. Right. And there's no reason other than even just because it sounds Greek doesn't mean he's Greek. That is a contention. I would say. The more orthodox belief is that he's Greek, but uh, you can you can take issue with that certainly. Certainly, Matthew wrote to the Jew. There's no question about that. Um, and so, but but the point is, they each had their own bias. They had their own reason for writing. There, as we said, you know, Matthew with the Roman guards and Mark with and Peter, and then Luke with uh, what Peter what Peter did here. They all had their own little thing they wanted to get across, uh, but. They're all consistent in the main thing, which is that Jesus is alive, he's raised, and he is, he's, he is no longer dead. So, Okay, so let's move on. So, it's, and, and we talked last week, just, just I don't want to get into it again here too much, but, uh, you know, how did he, how did the, uh, how did the angel put this to the women? When he said, remember how he spoke to you Yet being in Galilee, saying, It behoveth the Son of Man to be delivered up into the hands of sinful men and to be crucified on the third day to arise. And we said, uh, Is it, um, was it just a bless your heart, uh, a gentle reminder? Bless your heart, ladies, don't you remember? Or was it more of a stern rebuke? Remember he told you? I mean, come on. What does it take for you to remember this? And so, I started thinking a little bit this week is, why, why didn't they remember? Why couldn't they remember? We went back last week and we looked at Luke chapter 18. And uh, in Luke 18, 31, we have 31 to 34, we have where Jesus told them specifically that this is going to happen. And probably this is the reference that the angel's making here to this particular time when Jesus told them, because a lot of what he says here and what you're supposed to remember that Jesus said is what he said in Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 31 to 34. And, and part of that Luke 18 chapter, it says that, and it's referring to the uh, disciples, but it also goes to the women, is that they, they didn't understand what he was saying. Even though he was, <laughs> it's pretty black and white. This is what's going to happen to me. Uh, it says right then and there, at that very moment when he said it, they didn't understand it. And the word understand there, as we talked about last week, means to, it's like putting together the pieces of a puzzle. And what he was saying didn't fit the puzzle they were making. Because the puzzle they were making was that he was the Messiah, he was there to deliver them, he was going to cast off Rome, he was going to set up his kingdom. This was the start of eternity and the start of God's kingdom on earth. And they were seeing the miracles and they were hearing the preaching and they were watching. And this was the puzzle they were putting together, piece by piece by piece. And then he comes out from left field and says, I want to be delivered to sinful men and they're going to kill me in three days I want to rise again. This piece of the puzzle, this piece didn't fit their puzzle. And so they couldn't understand it because at that point... 
everything was going too good. Everything was going along too good. It's like this came out of left field and this doesn't fit with what I expect of Jesus. This doesn't fit what I expect of the Messiah. Yeah, right, right. Things are too good. What are you doing? And so I think because it didn't fit the puzzle they were putting together and things were so good that they just were able to just kind of put it in the background and not think about it. But now we come to, and, and I think the climax of all the that good stuff that was happening was a triumphal entry. And Jesus makes this triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem, and they're part of it, and they're hearing the Hosanna, Hosanna, and the crowd, and they're thinking, this is what I expected. This fits the puzzle. But now, a few days later, he's arrested, he's crucified, he's dead, and he's buried. And, yeah, yeah, Becky. Uh, 1834, his meaning was hidden from them. Right. Yeah, we talked about that last week, and, and basically uh, the idea is not that God was hiding that from them, not that, they were, not that that truth was spiritually hidden from them. The idea of hidden there means that they just could not understand it. It was their problem. They couldn't get their heads around what Jesus was saying. And I, I used the example last week of my high school physics class, physics class, because I didn't understand one word that teacher said the whole time she taught. From day one to the last day, I didn't understand a single thing about physics. It wasn't that she was hiding it from me. It wasn't that she wasn't trying to communicate it to me. It wasn't that she wasn't talking about physics every single day. The meaning of physics was hidden from me because I mentally, intellectually, couldn't grasp it. And so that was my problem. And so this is the same idea with when it says the meaning of what he was saying was hidden from them was not that God was hiding it from them or Jesus was hiding it from them or it was a spiritual thing, but it was just they intellectually could not get it. They couldn't understand it. It was hidden from them because they couldn't grasp it, that kind of thing. So so now we get into Jesus is dead and buried, and I think the opposite has happened because in, in verse 4 it says they were perplexed, they were wondering, they were entirely at a loss as to what was happening because, it, it, because just like what Jesus said didn't fit the puzzle that they uh, were building and putting together, now they have a different puzzle. And now their puzzle is that Jesus is dead and buried and this awful, terrible, miserable thing has happened and they they can't get their hand they can't understand that either and so uh, and so they have forgotten because what Jesus said back then is I'm going to die I'm going to be turned over to sinful man and I'm going to be killed but that wasn't all he said right it had a promise at the end of it and in three days I will rise again so now they're at the point where the puzzle they're putting together is this terrible, awful thing that happened that they didn't expect to happen, and they've forgotten the piece of the puzzle where Jesus said, but there's light at the end of that tunnel, and the third day I'm going to rise again. So now it, they, don't under, they don't remember it, 
because things are so terrible and so bad. So on one time, at one point, they, could, they forgot all about it because things were too good, and now they've forgotten about it because things are too bad. <laughs> and, and so when the, 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 uh, the, the uh, angel says, remember that he told you, then the, the very next verse says what? Then they remembered his words, right? It says, and they remembered his words. So all of a sudden, the light goes off, and they're like, oh, yeah, now I remember that. So, uh, and I think that that's kind of, what, Joe? I'm sorry, yeah. I think one of the things we've got to stop and think about, too, they were in severe trauma. And, and you don't know how to deal with your feelings at that point because you experienced death, you experienced, you know, all this other stuff going on, and it's your mind, your brain is not functioning. And part of the problem that I see is okay, wasn't that they weren't listening to Jesus before, and like you said, it's like putting together puzzle, but trauma really has, has an impact, and there is such a thing as secondary trauma with other people. Uh, you know, you may not be directly involved, but you know, you're traumatized by the stories that you hear and everything. Uh, as a social worker, we went through it all the time. You know, when I had to deal with a dangerous situation with a child, the child was traumatized, I was traumatized, secondary trauma, and we didn't know how to really handle it unless we went through the training. So here they are, they they don't understand secondary, you know, how many how many disciples or followers of Jesus talked about secondary trauma. <laughs> uh, so so I think that adds to the problem, you know, you know, from from my perspective, I think it was a gentle Bless your heart. Don't you remember? Because how many of us have gone dealt with, whether it's our own children or with uh, another person, and you know you've made very clear to the individual what your expectation is, and then all of a sudden they're not following what was recommended to them. Well, do you remember when uh, I said this? And how many times did I say it? Uh, and I think Jesus, you know, and, the, and I think what added to the confusion when Jesus even talked about destroying the temple and in three days it would be built before that, so that's adding more problem here for you to take it. Wait a minute, you're going to build the, uh, the, the temple and it took how many years to do it? Uh, and you're going to do it in three days? Yeah, right. Come on, be real. Uh, but that's the, in human, we've got to look at human nature. And all of the more human, Jesus was human too, but he was trying to teach us something. Well, I think you're right. I think that sometimes the gentle rebuke can have more impact because a lot of times when you do something wrong, you're expecting the stern rebuke. You're expecting to get in big, you're expecting mom and dad to really yell at you. I will say that with my own children, what I came to find out was that 
the, 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 the way that I could make them feel the most guilty was when they did something wrong and I would not yell at them or scream or jump up and down, but I would say in a gentle kind of composed voice, I'm so disappointed in what you did. When they hear that from dad, it just tears them apart. And so you don't have, and, and that was much more effective than yelling and screaming and getting mad. It was just, you know, what you did there disappoints me. I mean, I still love you, but I'm disappointed in the decision you made or what you did or what you said or whatever. So you may be right, Joe. It might be that in this case for the women especially, that the gentle rebuke, the gentle reminder had a more deep impact on them not remembering. But I like the idea too that it's the stress and the tension and the trauma because there is such a thing as repressed memories, right? And that kind of thing. So, and certainly uh, I think in the one case they were so happy that they didn't want to deal with that. And then they're so sad that they can't, that they have forgotten that because now things have turned so terrible and they've forgotten the promise at the end of it. And I think that's the same for us too. I think, you know, sometimes um, things are going so good in life Everything is falling into place. If I played the lottery, I would win. Uh, and But in those times where things are so great, sometimes we forget, you know, that God's a part of all of that. You know, we kind of start living on our own a little bit and, and our relationship with the Lord might suffer because things are so good, you know, I don't even really need his help right now. I'm, I'm rolling, baby, I'm rolling. But on the other hand, sometimes things are so terrible and awful and bad that we also, in those situations, can sometimes forget the Lord's in control too, and the Lord is part of that. And we want to just, and I think maybe it's a lot of part for men, especially, we just want to fix it ourselves. We want to handle it ourselves. We're capable of taking care of this problem or whatever it is, but we're not. And so sometimes when we're at the very high or the very low, we, like the women or the disciples, we kind of forget when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, always, don't forget me. I want to be part of your life. I'm, we're in relationship with this together. In the good times, rejoice and celebrate. In the bad times, come to me, and I will help you carry your burden. And sometimes in the highs and lows, we tend to forget about that. Grady. No, I think we've gone away past my question. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I have a question. I will, uh, what I kind of wonder is, you know, whenever... Uh, Jesus spoke in parables. He always took the disciples aside and said, uh, they, the other people sh shouldn't understand this, but I want you to understand it. Yes. Why wouldn't he have done it with that? Why wouldn't he have talked to them more specifically and said, this is, this is exactly what this means? You mean at the time when he said that this is going to happen to me? You know, I think he thought he was being clear. <laughs> I, think he, I think he thought he was telling them specifically what was going to on. I just don't think... As it says, they didn't understand it. They didn't understand it. They couldn't get their arms around it. They couldn't deal with it because it was just not what they in any way expected whatsoever. So, okay, let's, let's move on here real quick because I kind of want to do something quick with chapter, with, I'm sorry, verse 11. So um, it says, uh, let's go back here. Verse 9, uh, and having returned from the tomb, they, the women, related... Uh, these things all, all these things, to the eleven and to all the rest. Uh, 
Keep that, keep that in mind, all the rest, or do you have all the others? Yeah, so let me just make a quick comment about that right now. So here again, we have Luke telling us something that, that is, uh, he wants us to know. And he wants us to know that when the women came back to the tomb, that they said to the 11 disciples, obviously without Judas, not including Judas, what they had been told by the uh, angel. But that it wasn't only the 11. That there were others, too, who they told. So who were these others? Uh, Don't really know. Uh, They were followers of Jesus, obviously. Uh, They believed in him, and they were disciples in the fact that they saw him as their Messiah, their Lord, their Master, their King. Um, but they weren't one of the eleven. So here again, and we know that from Acts chapter one that by the by the time we get to Acts chapter one, that clearly there are 120 believers in Jerusalem at that time. Now there may not have been 120 here because there was still some time between this passage in chapter 1 of Acts, but there were more than just the 11 disciples and the three or four women. So again, what Luke wants us to know is this is a bigger thing. This is involving more people than we tend to think. We tend to think three or four women at the tomb and the 11 disciples. But what Luke is saying here is told the 11 and to the rest and to the others. How many were they? We don't know. Who were they? We're not sure. They were believers. They were followers. How many there were, we don't know. But again, Luke is wanting us to know this is, this, is a bigger, this is a bigger group of people than we tend to think traditionally. This is a bigger thing than we tend to keep have in our minds, generally speaking. So, verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the rest, again, who are, or the others, again, who are these others? These are the other women we talked about before. These are the other women who we don't know really who they were, how many there were. But all of these women who are named, and the other women with them, who told uh, the apostles these things. And then verse 11, and appeared before them like idle talk. And the words and their words appeared before the disciples like idle talk, and they, disbel- and they the disciples, disbelieved them. So the word for idle talk there. And you see, what does my, my uh, NIV has? Nonsense. Yeah. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. The, the word nonsense there, or idle talk, do any of you have any other word there for that? It's, in Greek, it's a medical term, and it means to, the, the babbling of a fevered and insane mind. The babbling of a fevered and insane mind. It's a medical term. So they thought it was nonsense. They thought, it was nonsense. they thought these women were crazy. You're crazy talk. And so <laughs> the point I want to make here is to show you that the first people to disbelieve in the resurrection were the apostles. They were the first to disbelieve in the resurrection were the apostles. To just bring it into today's culture, the women were bringing them disinformation. That's disinformation. 
There's no way that Jesus rose again is disinformation, misinformation. And we're canceling you. So just be quiet about it. So my question is, as I'm trying to struggle with this, is what did the apostles think? In other words, if the women come back and they say, we went, the stoners rolled away, we went to where Jesus was laid, he's not there, the angel said he's risen, he's alive, and go to Galilee and there he'll see you, and the apostles say, ain't no way that happened. What, so what did, what, on what base, well, on what basis? What did the disciples base that on? Stan. That goes back to the same thing you were talking about this morning. When the angel says, "Remember, it's not that they didn't have that in their mind that they forgot. They just chose to hear what they heard. It's very similar to what the news does today. Either side of the news, they take a situation and they have to fit it into their narrative. And this side fits it in this way right. because this is the narrative. This has to be true. Therefore. Whatever happened here has to be fitted. Has to fit mine. So they, because they still are of this mind that he was going to be a, a, this great military savior, uh, they just didn't get it. So the things like when they said, I will be crucified and rise again, they heard it, they remembered it, but it didn't mean anything because it didn't fit their narrative. I think that's so true, Stan. I think uh, today the same thing happens with people is uh, they want God to fit their notion of God, that God has to be the kind of God that they want him to be. And if he's not that kind of God, then they don't have any use for God. And they want God to be in, you know, they want to be the one in control and have God kind of do their bidding and be their kind of God instead of being the kind of person that God wants them to be. Let God be the kind of God I want him to be. Any other thoughts, Jim? Always been curious when it says, and God hardened their hearts so they could not understand, versus me having a very limited ability to comprehend God's big picture. It seems like there's two sides to that. There are, and I think there's two different things, honestly. I think when we talk about, as we talked about before, when the meaning of that was hidden from them, that was their, their situation. I think in the Old Testament with Moses and Pharaoh, God hardened his heart and actually. You know, made it so that he wouldn't let them go. Don't ask me why God did that. I don't know. But God did it to bring them out of slavery, and that's what he felt he had to do to make that happen. So obviously. But yeah, both, both things can happen. Both things can be true. They're not mutually exclusive. They're, there could be two different things. Well, I wrote down a few things, and we're running out of time, so let me just give you my, I'm going to give you my four things that I thought. One is, I think, that the disciples might have thought that nothing happened at all, and the women were just hysterical. They're hysterical, nothing really happened, and they're just the wild, like, idle talk. It's, it's nonsense, it's babbling, and you're, you're crazy. The other thing is, I think, they might have thought that the religious leaders had done something with Jesus' body. And the reason they might have thought that is because, and the reason they might have thought that the religious, religious leaders might do that is because, in a way, hiding Jesus' body takes away the tomb as a holy site. In other words, as long as you have a dead Jesus in a specific tomb, that becomes a place for his followers to kind of rally around. It becomes kind of a holy site for them and a place for them to rally around him, and they don't want that to happen, obviously, as religious leaders. Uh, 
Or they might have thought the Romans did something with his body because the same kind of thing, without a dead leader to rally around, the people were more easy to control. So they've had issues with the Christians already. They've had trouble with the Jews already. So by getting rid of Jesus' body, then the Romans have a crowd that's easier, a population that's easier to control without him being uh, in the tomb. And then the last thing is that, um, again, I mentioned before, the women went to the wrong tomb. But we know that Luke made that clear that that couldn't have happened. But, that, but at that time, the, the disciples might have thought that that was a possibility. So those are some things I think that the disciples might have thought possibly was happening, might have been part of the reason they didn't believe it. But obviously, they obviously didn't also remember what Jesus had told them back in Luke 18, that on the third day I'm going to rise again. But we'll get to it next week. But Peter, but Peter gets up and goes to the tomb. We're going to ask next week, be thinking about it, is why did Peter do that? None of the others did except for John, but why did Peter get up and go to the tomb? So... All right, that's where we'll leave it for today. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.